0: um let's um come together now for a time of of corporate prayer dear father we just thank you that we can come before you in prayer this morning uh, and as a church meeting in your presence we thank you father for your son jesus whom you sent to live among us to die for our sin and rise again so that we could be forgiven and live for you not for ourselves Thank you that as we've just prayed with Matt, you work for us in not just on the Sundays or supporting church things, uh, but you are interested in all things that we're doing. You have things for us to do in all aspects of our lives. Help us, Father, to be open for business as Matt is in whatever we're doing. Father, we just want to bring our church leaders before you this morning. I want to thank you for the Insights team who provide Advice and help Sam and Joe think through how we're doing as a church and how, what we can, what else we can do. I want to give thanks to Father for Mike and Dan who provide guidance and wisdom for Joe and Sam. Father, for all these people, we give thanks for the experience they have and their willingness to share and encourage. Finally, Father, we want to pray for Sam and Joe as they lead our church. Help them to always know that you love them no matter what. That your resources are infinite. Bless them, encourage them, give them wisdom, patience, humility and an abundance of spiritual gifts as they lead us. We pray for Sam, Father, as he comes a bit later to share from Acts again. We thank you for the blessing this journey through Acts has been as we see how your church grew from a group of confused people in a room to a movement spanning much of the known world by the end of Acts. Help us to see and hear what Sam shares with fresh eyes and ears. We pray as we ask your Holy Spirit to bless Sam and speak through him today. Father, we pray now uh, as the kids come, we just thank you for all the kids in our church, Father. We pray for us as parents that you would give us wisdom and uncles and aunts and grandparents. Give us wisdom to love our kids and to show them the things of you and bring them up in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Oh, good morning, church. Hey, it's wonderful that we're all together and uh, kids, uh, you guys are in this morning and I trust that there's going to be some things that I share with you as well. And Tribe, you've actually got a, a worksheet to be working through as well and there might be a little something for you afterwards uh, as you hand that back to Sarah. Uh, just a couple of things. Oh, by the way, my name's Sam. I'm the pastor here at the church. I know that there's a number of new people amongst us this morning. I just want to welcome you. I uh, hope that you sense uh, God's presence amongst us as we gather together. And uh, if you're watching online as well, perhaps for the first time, yeah, sense that uh, God's with us as we meet here in this place. Um, just a couple of other announcements. Uh, that we didn't get to this morning. Next week, our our, our lead pastor, Pastor Bill Vasilakis, our senior pastor of the Hills of the Christian Family Center Churches, is going to be coming and speaking with us. Bill wanted to get to the church a, a number of weeks ago, but he was sick, uh, so we had to postpone that. And this was the only week that fitted. So come in the morning for pancakes, and then here, Pastor Bill Vasilakis is going to come and share with us. Another exciting announcement is that as we lead up to Easter, uh, we are going to be holding here at the church a Passover meal. Uh, Passover was the, uh, the, the communion that we have is a reflection of what Jesus shared with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And there was a meal that traditionally the Jewish people had that celebrated the salvation history of what God had done for the Jewish people. And there's so much symbolic uh, meaning in that meal that we as Christians can understand and see, wow, wow, wow. And so it is with honour I can announce that uh, Joe's Father, my father-in-law, Graham, who's here. Hi, Graham. Just wave. Welcome, guys. Graham's actually going to be leading us in that meal. It's going to be a fantastic time, a time for all families. Uh, Kids can be involved. So it'll be a meal for for dinner, but then also just unpacking the significance of that meal that Jesus shared with his, his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. So really looking forward to that. Can we just pray before I begin? Can you just join me as I pray? Lord, we we thank you for your love. As we gather now uh, under your word, Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us. Lord, that you'd speak to children, that you would speak to old people, that you would speak to those who are searching, that you'd speak to those who have found you. Lord, we, we just invite you here. And ask that you use this time for your purposes. And I just pray specifically, Lord, that you would still our hearts. I've got a sense right now, in in all that we're doing, we're a bit scattered. There's a sense of not really knowing what's going on. So right now, Lord Jesus, would you still us? Would you settle us that we might hear you? In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you are new, uh, as a church, we have been going through the book of Acts, um, and it's been a a teaching series, not necessarily uh, preaching. There's a difference between teaching and preaching, although there is some preaching elements throughout this series. But what we've wanted to do is really unpack uh, the early church, just seeing the gospel move as... Um, as Kathy said, from the early times all all the way through. And the thing about Acts is it wasn't a finished book because Acts is still actually happening right now. We are involved in what is happening because the Holy Spirit is still active. The Holy Spirit is still moving through his church, using people like yourselves to expand his kingdom in the world. And... Now, at the very start of this series, I said we wouldn't go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We'll be skipping over some bits. However, as we've gone along, we've not really missed one sort of single word. Uh, through, <laughs> because there's so much good stuff as you read it. The the Holy Spirit just brings out his truth and his, his goodness to us as we read it. But this morning I'm actually going to do something a little bit different and it feels a bit naughty to do. I'm going to skip through a, a number of uh, chapters and I'm just going to tell you the story of what happened because I want to get to a point uh, of, of Paul before the king, King Agrippa, because I got a sense about a month ago that the Lord wanted to, me to share this particular message and I've been kind of anticipating it and excited about it, um, and I was believing it was for today. So we're going to like scoot through and get to this point and unpack something. And we're not actually going to be looking particularly um, at the text, but what was Luke trying to portray? We're going to kind of step back and ask questions of Luke and ask questions of the way he wrote what he wrote because what was the message that he, as as a Christ follower, was trying to portray to his audience and what he's trying to portray to you and I today? So last week at the end of Chapter 23, we were getting through, there was this these bunch of people who took an oath not to eat or drink until they could get Paul. Now, what a silly oath to take because... Did they die of starvation? Because Paul Paul stayed alive. Um, but they were out to get him. So the uh the guy who was uh there, he he saw that this was going to happen and he wanted to protect Paul, and so he was gonna take him to Felix, who was the governor of the region there. And but these these guys were out to get him, and we saw the providence of God at act in Acts last week where Paul's nephew was on the scene. He heard of this threat, of this ambush, and he, he told uh, Lysias about this. And, and so he's, he's going to go head off to Caesarea. Now, Caesarea was on the Mediterranean here, uh, down here. I'm in the way. So Jerusalem is here, and Caesarea was really the point where the governors, the Roman governors, um, liked to stay because it was a lovely spot. It was on the Mediterranean coast. It had good weather. Got to see the ocean in the morning. So, if you had power, where would you set up where you want to reside? In a nice spot. Um, and so we had these governors. Pontius Pilate was one of the governors of the region. And now we've got this guy called Felix. And Felix was a, a corrupt governor. He took bribes. And so he's gonna, Paul's gonna have a trial. So Paul's accusers come to Caesarea and Felix holds this trial. And the accusers have three things against Paul. Number one, he's a troublemaker starting riots. The Romans don't like riots. Number two, he's part of an unrecognised sect. So the Romans had particular religions that were okay and certain ones that weren't okay and you had to be an official religion and if you didn't, you might be a riot maker because Romans don't like riots. And so uh, the accusation was that Christianity was this unrecognized sect. And the third thing was that Paul defiled the temple by taking a Gentile into the temple area and we talked about that a little while ago. And Paul simply defends all of these accusations and says, give me your witnesses. Who can prove any of these things? And so the, the trial is thrown out, but Paul is kept in jail for two years. For two whole years, Paul's there in prison. And it's, and it's thought that this is where Luke Um, got most of his uh, um, writing material for the book of Acts from Paul while he was in prison here in Caesarea. Now Felix leaves the scene and he's replaced by Festus, another Roman governor. And he sort of, as the governor, wants to make sure there's peace and harmony in his region. And so he sees that there's this prisoner and this sort of unresolved thing going on and he wants to resolve it. And so he then tries to um, bring the trial back up again and get the accusers from Jerusalem back to him to work out why on earth Paul is in prison. What have they got against him? What is this troublemaker all about? And once again, after two years, this same group of, well, terrorists really, because they wanted to ambush him and, and take him out, are still on Paul's case. And just a little side note, this shows you what hate can do to the human psyche. They hated Paul so much that they could not let it go. That after even two years of Paul being in prison, they still wanted to ambush him and take his life. And it's just a really small indication of what unresolved conflict can do in our lives how that can fester in our hearts and how why the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. But when it festers and festers inside of us, man, these guys, after two years, were still bent on getting Paul. So then Paul, again, now under Festus, not under Felix and not under Lysias, this is the fourth time... These accusations are going to be brought up against Paul. And Paul's sitting there going, again, that brought this up again. Where are the witnesses? Come on, what's going on? And Paul can see that this trial's going nowhere. And so Paul does what every Roman citizen had the right to do. He appeals to Caesar. So Festus says in Acts 25, after he'd conferred with his council, he declared, You've appealed to Caesar. To the emperor, okay, well then to Caesar you will go. So the the Roman citizens had their right to appeal their case to, it's like the Supreme Court. Like if it didn't work out in the local courts, you could appeal it to the Supreme Court. You could go to the emperor himself, which was Emperor Nero at the time. So as this happens, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go, I wonder what clicked in Paul's mind. Do you remember when Jesus appeared? To um, Paul in prison. He said, as you've been faithful witness to me in Jerusalem, you'll also be a faithful witness to me in Rome. And we wondered, how on earth is Paul going to get to Rome if this is God's will, if he's in chains? He has no free will to to travel as he did in his missionary journeys. But now the Roman government are going to pay for his ticket to do God's will. How cool is that? And so most of what was, what was happening in Paul's head was, wow, this is how God's going to work out his purposes. I'm going to go to Rome to see Caesar and to appeal my case. But this was the fourth time this particular trial came up and he's actually going to be under trial again as he meets the king. We're going to meet that in a, in a second. And the same thing kept coming up again and again and again. His accusers came to him every time he was under the authority of of the rulers and the judges, if you look through the Acts at the amount of times it says they could find no fault. They could find no fault. And I think that's just a beautiful phrase, not only for what we see in the narrative of Paul, but for the Christian As we, as Paul does, come and walk humbly with our God, as we are led by the Spirit, as we have a close walk with God, people around us and people who uh, see our lives, see that there is an integrity, see that there is a change in our lives. And in comparison to the rulers who had bribes, who were corrupt, here's Paul being judged by these corrupt people and they're like wow we find no fault in him isn't that a beautiful picture can we can we say that of our own lives as we live out the christian walk and follow jesus in our own lives so they could find no fault in him acts 26 this is down the track after they left the room they began to say one another this man has not done anything that deserves death or imprisonment. That's just one example of hundreds. So we're skipping through. We're getting there. Festus now is sending Paul to Rome, but he still needs something to charge him with. Imagine as a governor sending a prisoner to have a trial done, and it's like, well, what's he here for? I don't know. So he's still scratching his head, going, I've got to actually charge Paul with something. In order to for my um, you know presence to be good and being a good governor, I've got to I've got to do this. And so he's wondering what to do. Now, King, the king of Judea, King Agrippa, Herod, was in in the region, and he, the Bible says, was an expert on Jewish matters. He had a, a Jewish background. And he was friends with Felix, and so he thinks, I'm going to get the king involved now. I'm going to get the king involved and see what he thinks about what's going on and see if we can find some charges against Paul. And that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning, uh, verse 13 of 25. So after a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice, which was his sister, arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to the Festus. And since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's this man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. And when I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders and Jews brought charges against him and asked him that he be condemned. And now this is a little recap of what I just said. I told them that it is not Roman custom to hand anyone over before they have faced their accusers and had the opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. And when they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day in order that the man be brought in. When his accusers came and got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes that I had expected. Instead, now listen to this. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. Isn't it amazing that Festus could actually see what actually Paul was about? It wasn't about religion. It wasn't about works. It was actually about the gospel. Paul went around preaching the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And that really is what the squabble was about. So, um, who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss as how to investigate such matters. So I asked he would be willing to go to Jerusalem to stand trial and charges there. Now, there was going to be an ambush, so no. But when Paul made his appeal to hand over to the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held here until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa, this is the king, said to Festus, well, I would like to hear this man myself. And Festus is going, oh, yes, this is good. i you might have some information for me because no one's been able to find fault with this man. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. Now, before we get to this section of the narrative, I want to um, describe to you the Herodian dynasty. This is uh, Herod Agrippa II. As you read through the Gospels and Acts, the name Herod comes up a lot, and you might be confused... Why is Herod alive for a very long time? Well, there is a number of different Herods throughout uh, the reign and throughout the, the narrative of the Gospels and of Acts. This is Herod Agrippa II. His dad was Herod Agrippa I. Funny how those things work. Herod Agrippa the, the I um, was uh, in Acts, and we, we saw that when he had this uh, James... The brother of John beheaded. Do you remember what happened to that Herod? Anyone remember that story from Acts? He was eaten by worms. That's a good way to go. So he had beheaded uh, James. So he he was uh, he went. His uncle was the one that beheaded John the Baptist. His, his Herod the Gripper the great 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 grand no great great grandfather was Herod the Great, who wanted all of the babies in Jerusalem to be gone with to, because he was threatened. So we've got this family DNA of crazy kings who want to get rid of people, and so here Paul is in in front of another part of this family line, part of this this dynasty of. Let's get rid of people we don't agree with. And you're wondering, is Paul going to be the next one who's going to follow in the footsteps of all of these people who the kings have got ridden of? So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Don't you just love that? Thanks, Luke, for, for writing that. They came with great pomp. Now kids, do you know what pomp means? Anyone want to have a go at pomp? Pete? Did we say? It sounds like pompous. Pomp, yeah. Pomp is kind of a great show, a great display of kind of royalty and look at me and how good am I. And as I looked up this word, do you know what the original Greek word means? It's actually a word where we get our word for fantasy from. So it's a bit like when a child dresses up in a Superman suit, you're thinking they're, they're just pretending, they're fantasising about what they're doing. And so Luke is saying that the king came in with great dressing up and pretending to be something he's not. Because what Luke's actually setting up here in this scene is a very good contrast between the religion of the day, the, the, what the world sees as important and what Paul is going to present as the gospel. They came with great pomp. They entered the room and it's as if these people have the right to judge Paul where the irony is Paul as the little man who's going to come in with no pomp as he shares the truth of the gospel, is ultimately going to be judging them. And so we have this scenario, this picture that that Luke is painting, of this sort of contrast between wealth and importance and what we see as in humanity as being right and good compared to what Paul is going to present as the gospel as being the truth. And so at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now, we don't in the Bible have any physical description of Paul, but there is, uh, out of the um, biblical writings, uh, a a writing of an early church father that wasn't um, included in the Bible, so we don't necessarily uh, trust all of its accuracy, but there was an early church writer who wrote a book called The Book of Acts, uh, the book, uh, the Acts of Paul. And in it, he gives a description of what Paul looked like. And I've got it here. So he's a man of small stature, so he's short. He had a bald head. He had crooked legs, uh, in a good state of body, but he had eyebrows meeting, so he had a monobrow. He had a nose that was crooked. He was full of friendliness, and we we know from and some other descriptions that we had that we 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 believe that Paul had poor eyesight as well, so he's probably squinting. So here you have this comparison of great pomp, walking in with robes and and crowns and beautifulness, and what the world would see is important, and then in comes Paul. He's short, he's bald, he's got crooked legs, he's got a crooked nose and he's squinting. <laughs> <laughs> and here we've got this, this, this amazing picture of what the world sees as important versus what God sees as important. You know, the Bible says that man looks on the outside but God looks at the heart. And this is a great example of that that all the people in the room were like, wow, look at the king, look at his robes, look at how important he is. Oh, who's this little fella? And yet in that room, who was the most important person in the eyes of God? The one that was about to declare the truth of the gospel because man looks on the outside but God looks at the heart. And so here's Paul brought in and he is able to see the king. Actually, if you've got your Bibles, just turn over for a moment to Acts chapter 9. When, when Paul was first converted on the road to Damascus and he goes and Ananias speaks to Paul, um, let's see if I can find it, um, Fifteen. Thank you. Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and their kings. Isn't that interesting that Ananias, at the time of Paul's conversion, in a way prophesied that Paul was going to go to the Gentiles to preach, but he's also going to have an audience with kings. Now how on earth is that going to happen? Well, as we flip over to our chapters that we're reading now, Paul is going to be in front of the king, and he has an audience with the king. Now, I want you to just put yourself in this situation. You've been in prison for two years. You've been falsely accused. You have a heart to share, continue to share the gospel, particularly with your own people, the the, the Jewish people. You want to see them be saved And here you have an audience with the king. What are you going to use this opportunity for? Is it to um, plead your case? Is it to say, uh, I've been falsely accused, can I have those two years back, please? Are you going to, you know, talk about your own situation Are you going to focus on yourself to try and get yourself out of this pickle? I mean, that's kind of what I would do. Would you do that? What does Paul do? What does Paul use this opportunity for? He uses this opportunity to preach the gospel. Paul's heart is not on his own situation, on his own circumstance, but he sees the king and he goes, wow, I could maybe save the king. And I'm just blown away by Paul's opportunity and what he does. And it's just a reminder to you and I that we should spend every opportunity we have, no matter who we're in front of, whether it be someone who the world sees as lowly or the world sees as highly and everywhere in between, we should take every moment and every opportunity to share the good news about Jesus, which is precisely what Paul does. He could have gone into, well, they, they, they accuse me of this and I can prove them wrong, blah, 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 blah. But Paul shares his testimony and he, he unpacks the fact that the, the prophets have, have talked about Jesus coming, it's going to happen, and he desires to save the king. And this is now where I want to just... Step out of the text for the moment. Because how does Paul share the gospel with the king? He shares his testimony. Now, this is the third time that Luke records the testimony of Paul in the book of Acts. Now, why didn't Luke just say, and once again, Paul told his testimony on, on the road to Damascus and then save a few pages of parchment. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've only got a certain amount of parchment to write, write what you want to write on. Why use up so much of it to say the same thing, to repeat the same thing? When we see repetition in Scripture, that's like someone doing an explanation mark because they didn't have explanation marks back then. So when you see the repetition of a phrase, that's the writer going, take note of this. This is important. This is important. So Luke is saying that the conversion of Paul is an important thing. It's an important thing. Repetition, repetition, repetition. I remember um, I used to enjoy going to Wirraway Campsite. Anyone been to Wirraway? Anyone? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Pete and Nina Arnott set this, uh, Christian camp up and we'd, we'd spend a lot of time at We're Away. We'd just rock up sometimes. <laughs> um, and they'd let us have tea, fish fingers. Um, but I remember being there one time and we were there to help, uh, look after the property. And Pete had just bought a brand new ride on lawnmower, uh, to help mow the, the, the grass area at the back and he asked if I wanted to mow the lawn. And for me, that was like, yeah, because I love mowing lawns. If you know me, I like my nice, straight, flat lawn. I didn't hear an amen. Yeah, amen. Come on, nice, flat, sh- straight lawn. So I, I I loved my lawns. And so Pete said, would you like to do, lawn? yeah, I'd love to do the lawns. Uh, and especially on a ride on lawnmower. So he he told me how to use it, you know, these, these are the gears and this. And he said this phrase, he said, I want you to start in the middle and go clockwise around to the outside. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then how does this work and how do you lower that? And like, yep, yep. I want you to start in the middle and I want you to go clockwise. Yep, all right, got it. And then, okay, so then I start in the gears and I go, okay, and I'm off. Oh, and by the way, start in the middle and go clockwise. Okay, so then I mow the lawn. And I'm pretty proud of my effort. And he comes out and he shakes his head. And he goes, you didn't go in the middle and go clockwise, did you? And I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Why is that important? Because it, had, it throws the grass out to the right and so if you, if you go around, every time you go around the thrown grass, it, it throws it out further and further and further. And so it eventually gets all, because it didn't have a catch it, all the grass then ends up on the outside and you have a beautiful flat lawn without the cut grass on it. And when you looked at it, what I did, you just had these circles of grass. It looked like someone's about to get hay out of the grass <laughs> because I didn't listen to the repetition. I didn't listen to his explanation mark. I didn't listen to an important thing that was said to me. And it's the same thing with you and I when it comes to our spiritual lives. There are so many truths of the gospel that we hear and we have explanation marked and we have repeated that we go away and we forget. And then it comes back to us and we're like, Ah, that's right. I needed to relearn that truth. I needed to relearn that. Anyone here had examples in your life where you've had to learn or relearn or be reminded time and time again of a truth? It might be the importance of reading scripture and you, and you, every day you do it and, it, oh, this is amazing, and then there's a period and then you come back to it and go, why did I ever let it go? <laughs> Have you come to an understanding about who Jesus is and what he's done for you and it blows your mind and then you forget and you have to come back to it and relearn it and and understand it again. What was Luke trying to do in repeating in explanation marking Paul's conversion? It was simply this that the gospel has the power to change people. The gospel is what was spread throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. The gospel is the power to change you and I, to change us from darkness to light, to, ch- to we're going this way, now we're going that way. And here is an example of Paul's life, someone who was going a particular way, going down a certain road, The gospel touched Paul and it turned him around. And in the same way that it touched Paul, it can touch you and it can touch everyone else. The death, burial and resurrection of Jesus has the power to transform a human heart. And I was was thinking about this and I felt like the Holy Spirit just Gave me this phrase, and I quickly grabbed my phone and I wrote down notes. And so I wanted to share it with you as we end and as we head into communion this morning. When we encounter God, change happens. And we can try and make change happen in our lives, but no amount of works-based change can ever compare to the richness and wonder of what God can accomplish. Isn't that true? we can try and muster up with all of our effort. The, the governors could look at Paul and go, wow, I find no fault in him. I want to be like him. How do I do it? I've just got to work myself up. I've got to do what's right. I've got to do what's good. But as Paul stands before the king and he speaks about the death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus, he said that was the power that transforms the human heart. That is the power that changes us from the inside out. And that is what Jesus has done for us. So we're going to have a time of communion now together. Before we do that, let's just just pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death, your burial, and your resurrection. We thank you for Paul's uh, way that he unpacked that to whatever audience he had. And Lord, as we look at that right now, Perhaps we need to again be reminded of that. Perhaps this needs to be a repeat in our lives that there was a time when we remembered the importance of what you've done. Perhaps we've, we've walked away. Perhaps we've, we've lost the wonder. And this morning you're wanting to remind us again of the power of the gospel. That as we focus on you, as we give our hearts to you, you come And you make the change in our lives that we cannot do ourselves. You make the change in our lives that we had strived for and failed in. You make the change in our lives that cannot compare to anything we can do. So, Lord, as we come to share in your meal, that reminds us of what you've done, that reminds us of the gospel. Help us to be humble as we look on our lives and say, Lord, What are you needing to reteach me? Lord, what are you needing to remind me of? Lord, what do you need to be explanation marking in my life as I come to this meal, as I come to see what you've done in my life and for my response to that? So, Lord, as we come, speak, and be in what we do right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite the... Music, music team up. You know, there's another repetition in the Bible. Do you know where it is? It's as Jesus shares the the Passover with his disciples. He says, "Do this in remembrance of me." And then he later on he says. Do this in remembrance of me. Why did Jesus repeat those words? Because he wanted to make a point. And that is because sometimes we forget the importance. Sometimes we just let it go as just a tradition or a thing that we go through. But this meal represents what Jesus did as he suffered and bled for us, as he gave his life up for us so that we might come to him and have a changed heart forever. So on the night that Jesus would betrayed, he took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we do as the Lord Jesus commanded and we take the cup and the bread and we remember and we give thanks for his explanation mark of what he is saying to us. So as you come, as you take the bread and as you take the cup, remember what has God done for you? How has he spoken in your life? How has this represent, representation of his death and his resurrection mean for you in your life? So I'm going to invite uh, this side to stand, move to the outside, come and grab the bread and the cup, and then come back down the middle and hold on to the bread and the cup. We're going to eat and drink together. And once that side is done, this side can head to the side wall, grab grab the elements and come back to the side as well so feel free to do that now and we're going to sing a song that speaks of jesus's death death burial and resurrection may you be reminded again of the power of jesus's death and of his resurrection As you hold the bread and the cup that represents the gospel, I want you to just pause for a moment. And kids, you can do this too. Just pause for a moment. What are you needing to relearn this morning? What are you needing to be reminded of? What truth? What reality is Jesus saying to you right now? Just spend a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this meal that we can share together that is a repetition. It is an explanation, Mark. That you have done something that is so incredible that we can't just gloss over it. This incredible sacrifice has changed our lives, has brought about your kingdom, has changed us forever. What does that mean as we go out into this world and speak to those around us? Do we take every opportunity like Paul did to just share about this thing that you've done? That you loved us so much that you gave your life for us to be reconciled to the Father, to have a hope of eternal life in you. Lord, we thank you for your bread, for your body that was given for us. We thank you for your blood that was shed for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. So let us take and eat the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us drink together the cup that represents his blood shed for you and I, for the redemption of our sins. Let's sing that chorus again.
2: thinking, you might want prayer this morning, and um, I just have a sense, you might have been striving and trying to drive that change, and it's not working, um, but when God shows up in your life, you can't help but change, and it's just that easy, and so if you want to receive that touch of God this morning, you need to have some prayer. Um, i invite you out the front, but also in our prayer room out the back there too, will be people waiting to, to speak with you and pray with you. Because um, God is a God of change and he, he drives up. So thanks, Sam, and thank you, team. Thank you, kids, for being fantastic in this morning. Kids programs are back on next week. And uh, don't forget we've got pancakes early at 9.30, so we look forward to seeing you then. Um, but, yeah, let's just uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the ministry of Paul and the example He's given us to put you first in all ways and to present the good news through His testimony and through what you did ultimately to change Him, Lord. And we just ask that you'll touch us in those same ways and help us to be an example like that. In your Jesus, Jesus's name, Amen. Thanks, folks. Well, um, yeah, that closes the service now. And there's coffee. Uh, and uh, is there coffee today? No coffee. Sorry. But there's lots of fellowship, so we invite you to join in and yeah, catch up with one another. Bless you.